It's great to see you here today. Thanks for joining those of us who uh, couldn't pull off one last week of vacation before the fall. Almost this entire section apparently was able to. You guys didn't get the memo that your section was on vacation? <laughs> Thanks for joining us on our, uh, our virtual audience as well through the miracle of Facebook Live. Glad that you could be with us as well. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 10 or open up your phone to Revelation chapter 10. Uh, the sermon notes are both in your bulletin for those of you who prefer the printed page and also on the Version Bible app if you prefer that. I believe the scriptures are there for you as well if you'd like to follow along in that way. Our passage this morning is the entire chapter, and so let's get to it, and let's read that together. Revelation chapter 10. John, our author, of course, is speaking here. And he says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, and nations, and languages, and kings. This is the word of our God to us, his church, for whom Christ died and is alive forevermore. Amen? Let's work through this passage together. We're going back to verse 1, as is our custom. Uh, this is, I think, message number 22 in the book of Revelation. If you're new to our body here or you're following along with us online for the first time. We've been working through the text of Revelation verse by verse. My commitment is that we will not be skipping passages, uh, but that we will tackle all of this book, as difficult as it might be. And this is one of those chapters, by the way, 
that Bible scholars that I've looked at and read uh, on the book of Revelation <laughs> all agree this is tough stuff. This is one of the harder chapters. Uh, it's one of the harder chapters in the book of Revelation to come uh, to an interpretation about. And we have more of that coming uh, down the road, by the way. Please note, first of all, though, that, that John's vantage point has changed with the beginning of chapter 10. Where John physically is located is different with the beginning of chapter 10. Up until this point, John has been viewing the revelation that has been unfolding before him for him to write down. He has been viewing it from the vantage point of heaven. Uh, since chapter 4, this has been the case. So chapters 4, up until this moment, he's been viewing this from the vantage point of heaven. However, now he's back on the earth, and he sees an angel coming down, descending from heaven. And, and this mighty angel that he sees comes on a mission. Let's look at verse 2 together. We'll, in verses 2 and 3, we'll see this angel's mission he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea. I want you to picture this. Close your eyes if you have to, but get this image in your head. He had, has a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the land, and he calls out with a voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Picture that scene in your mind. Every indication that we have from this text is that this angel is large. <laughs> He's got a foot in the sea. He has a foot in the land. And, and I know you smart Alex out there that, you know, would want to question this idea, would say, well, I could do that. And you could go to a beach and put your foot in the sea and foot on the land. But I think the poetic imagery here is that this is a very large angelic being with a foot on the, in the sea and a foot on the land. And, and what is this little scroll that he's holding in what we should assume to be his enormous hand? Bible scholars have suggested many theories. It will not shock you at all for me to say that they don't all agree on what this little scroll is that he's holding. Some have said that this is a prophetic commission. Others have said that this is the remainder of the book of Revelation that this angel is holding. Uh, some have said that this is indeed the scroll with the seven seals that we've studied for many weeks as we looked at those seals being taken off and, and all of the things that happen in result of that. Some have made that statement. Well, this is that scroll that we've been looking at. Some say that this is the book of life. The angel's voice in these verses reminds John of a lion roaring. What a great image that is. I think this would be a tremendous movie, by the way. In the Old Testament, the voice of Jehovah is described as a lion roaring. Let me just show you a couple of passages so that you can see what I'm talking about here. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, it says, They shall go after the Lord, after Jehovah. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Yeah, I would assume so. And then also in Amos chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, in the Hebrew, has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And the angel's voice in this verse in Revelation, verses 2 and 3, 
was accompanied by what John describes as being the seven thunders. Again, this is a common Old Testament image. I won't take the time to show you those verses. But notice that the thunder actually speaks words that John can understand. This is one of the more interesting parts of this chapter. In the thunder, John discerns intelligible words. Look at uh, verse 4 in Revelation 10 with me. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So John hears a message in the thunder and he's about to write it down and, and we don't fault him for this. He figures it's part of the revelation right, that he's receiving from God. And so he begins to write the message down and he hears a voice from heaven saying, don't do it. Don't write it down. Seal it up. That's what seal it up means. John is to keep what he has heard to himself and not write it down in the revelation. Now that is very interesting to me and makes me really, really want to know what the thunder said to John. God has ordained some truth to remain a mystery. God has ordained some truth, church, to remain a mystery. It's, it's not for us, at least not yet. Maybe in heaven it will be, but for now it's not ours to know. And I'm going to say more on that at the end when we look at applying this text. So I'll just put a pause on that idea for the moment. Let's go to verses 5 through 7. Let's continue on in our study of this chapter. And, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it that there would be, and listen, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Why does the angel raise his right hand to heaven? The answer might be as simple as that's where God is. And so this enormous, mighty angel lifts his right hand to heaven because he's pointing or motioning to where Jehovah is. I, I love the passage in Isaiah where God tells us that he lives both in heaven and in the hearts of the humble. Let me show you this passage. I, I love this passage. It, it, this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but I just when I came across this passage with this idea of the angel lifting his right hand to heaven, indicating that that's where God is, I thought, you know what, this is so important on a pastoral level for me to continually remind you of this truth. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also, don't miss this, friend, especially if you're going through a tough time right now, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Our creator, awesome, holy, righteous, and just God, lives not only outside of creation and time, which is his creation he holds in the palm of his hand, but that same living God, church, lives in the heart of the person who humbles himself before him. Amen? Let's never forget that. Let's never forget that. Also, this angel might lift his hand because the Old Testament was part of taking an oath. We understand this because we still do this. It was part of taking an oath in Old Testament, in the Old Testament. Abraham had said to the king of Sodom, that's where this passage comes from in Genesis 14, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, to Jehovah God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. The point of this passage is that God lifts, or that Abram lifts his hand at taking an oath to God. And here in Revelation chapter 10, the angel raises his right hand and swears to the creator that there will be no more delay. No more delay of what? No more delay that the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Now, what is this? What is the mystery of God and what, what does it mean here as the angel makes this oath? Years before, the Apostle Paul had written to the Corinthians, and he, he wrote this. He said, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What is the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which, by the way, we've just said, some of which we're not to know. Some of ours is not, some of this is not for us to know now, but this Part of the mystery, it, it seems that it is for us to know. What is the secret and hidden wisdom of God throughout the Old Testament times that would be revealed for the church's glory? I think we gain a lot of understanding about this idea, about the secret and hidden wisdom of God when we look at what Paul writes to the Colossians. To me, this is one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament, and I hope this verse never stops moving you because of the reality that it conveys for every single person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Colossians 1.27 tells us, to them, to those who are saved, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. What is the mystery that is now going to be made known that this angel is giving testimony to? It's the fulfillment of this idea that when you trusted in Christ for your salvation, friend, brothers and sisters throughout this room, brothers and sisters listening right now online, those of you who are going to watch our service in the days to come, all of us, any of us who have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, the mystery that is revealed is that Christ lives inside of us. Amen? What a beautiful, glorious 
truth that is. What is the mystery? Christ in us. What is our hope of glory to come? Christ in us. Without that, there is no hope of glory. A couple Bible commentators write very well on this. Ian Paul wrote, the mystery of God has nothing to do, please, I'll touch on this at the end too, but please take note of this. The mystery of God has nothing to do with secret timetables. There's so many books being written about that, charts and graphs and current events related to the end times. The mystery has nothing to do with secret timetables, but the redemptive purposes of God in his offer of grace to unexpected people, something that human reason cannot understand on its own. And Bible scholar Robert Mounts writes, John is saying that with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, that which God purposed in creation and made possible through the blood of the Lamb will be brought to its fulfillment. We'll come back to this idea at the end. What happens next in Revelation chapter 10? Let's look at verses 8 through 9. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Uh, to me, this would have been bigger than the David and Goliath story. Little John, little Apostle John, walks up to this enormous angel, one foot in the sea, one foot on the land, and says, hey, give me the, give me the little scroll. That took courage, but the voice from heaven told him to do it. And he said to me, take and eat it. I wonder if John expected to hear that. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Eating the scroll here, it's not the first time this image. John maybe did expect this because it's, it's present in the Old Testament as well. Eating the scroll signifies receiving the message. It signifies digesting it. So what does John do? He, he does. He does this very thing so that he can internalize the contents of the message so that he can speak it to others. Look at verse 10. We see him following through with that task. He said, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Why is the scroll sweet in John's mouth? Again, this is not surprising because we see this imagery all through the Old Testament. Let me just show you a couple of passages here to illustrate it. Psalm 119, 103 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, this is a common biblical image throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah uh, 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Jehovah, God of hosts. And now for John, the word of God is sweet because the time has finally come. It's sweet to him because the time has finally come for the mystery of God, Christ in us, to reach its fulfillment. I want to make sure I'm crystal clear on this. Christ is in you. That, that, that cannot be changed. If you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, if you are trusting today in Christ for your salvation, Christ is in you, and that cannot be altered. When I say and at this time, it's reaching its fulfillment. It's because we know, don't we, 
that we still battle with sin, that the world is not yet as it should be, and that there's more change yet to happen. Amen? And so that's the fulfillment. In, in theology, we, we use different terms to talk about this. We talk about our justification, which happens the very moment you accept Christ as your Savior, where God looks at you, and even though you're in your sins, God declares you to be righteous. He says, I, I know, to, this is what Jesus said about me at the moment of my salvation. I know that 10-year-old kid is a dirty, rotten sinner, the 10-year-old boy that reached out to him in faith, but I declare him to be righteous because of my blood. And so God the Father looked at me, that 10-year-old boy, and said, even though he's messed up and isn't going to really account to much for the rest of his life, by the blood of Christ, I see him as perfect. That's awesome. The next doctrine we need to think about is sanctification. Sanctification says that we are in the process throughout our journey with Christ as we journey in this life with Jesus until the end of our days. We are in the process of becoming what God says we already are. God says we're perfect. We're in the process of becoming that. That's sanctification. There's a third doctrine we need to talk about, and that's glorification. And glorification is the doctrine in our theology that says we finally become what God says we are. Perfect. Amen, church? And so that's, that's important understanding to have when we're talking about this idea of Christ in us. The harder question here in this verse is why does the scroll become bitter in John's stomach? It's bitter because there's still further persecution for the people of God to face. God's people have not finished suffering yet for their faith. And that is why the scroll becomes bitter. Grant Osborne writes, the scroll is sweet because God will always, God's will always benefits his people who will be vindicated and rewarded for their sacrifice. It is bitter because in the interim, it will bring persecution and great suffering to the saints. This scene in Revelation, just so you have some Old Testament context for this, is very similar to what the prophet Ezekiel is instructed to do in the Old Testament. And this is important to see as we wrap up and, and get to that last verse in Revelation chapter 10. But Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 said, And he said to me, says God speaking to Ezekiel the prophet, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll. And go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me a scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll, and I will give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Ezekiel was to spread the message that he was given, the prophecy that he was given by Jehovah, he was to spread it to the nation of Israel. But John's audience is to be much larger. Who is John's message to go to? Verse 11 tells us, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings because between Ezekiel and John, Jesus came. And Jesus started this thing called the church. 
And the church was to spread the message of the gospel first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, amen, as Acts 1.8 says. And that's exactly what's happened. And so John's revelation, John's prophecy is so much more than just the nation of Israel. Well, how can we apply? Time is wrapping up or running short here. So how can we apply what we've looked at in Revelation chapter 10? Let me give you a few things to consider this morning. And I'm going to send you out the door with one big action step. Last week, by the way, church, did my heart good. It did my heart good to see so many people come down to the front. I want to say about half the room come down here at the front and say, you know what? I've been struggling with an idol in my life, but today I'm turning my back on the idol and I'm once again making Jesus the king of my life. Amen? And so for those of you who came down and, and responded in that time, I'm, I've been praying for you throughout the week, still praying for you, continue to pray for you and pray for me. The action step today is going to look a little bit different. It's not going to be to come down to the front today. It's going to be to go out into the world. But let me, let me get there. <laughs> Don't rush me, okay? Message isn't over yet. All right. Some of you were hopeful that I was about ready to wrap up right there. All right, so number one, here's one point of application. We should accept that some mysteries are not ours to know. We should accept that some mysteries are not ours to know. I think that's one of the things that comes out of Revelation chapter 10. There are hidden things that belong to God alone. After all, he's God. And, and someday in heaven, he may reveal some of those to us, and, and he may choose not to. Because even in heaven, he will not stop being the creator, and we will not stop being the creation. And so it makes sense that there are some mysteries, what we consider to be a mystery, that are for him and him alone. Amen? I mean, it just, it just makes sense. And we see this throughout Scripture. Those passages are on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. Again, this verse that we've already looked at, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And it's not the first time we see this in Scripture. Moses said to the Israelites, if you look at Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. I think both parts of that are important. There are things that only belong to God, but the things that God has revealed, where has he revealed them in the 66 books of this Bible? Those belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Moses, of course, here was talking to Israel, and he's talking about the Old Testament law. But it's good and right and true that we should apply that to the entire canon now. Paul said to Timothy, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So what God has not revealed, we shouldn't worry about. What God has revealed, we should absolutely worry about, church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that there are things that cannot be told that man may not utter. Till the return of Christ, we're only going to know in part and and. In his earlier letter to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians, he had written, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. God rules the future. 
We don't need to know the details. Here's my question. Is our faith in having all of the answers or is our faith in him? Is our faith in having to know exactly how all of this is going to play out and in the context of of what we're talking about in the book of Revelation? Do we have to know the timeline and the dates and and how everything is going to happen? Is that where our faith is? Is Or is our faith in the one who has all the answers that we can trust that his plan is perfect and we should just go along for the ride? I'll tell you what, it's real simple for me. When Jesus comes back, I'm going to just try to get as close to him as possible. And, and if you're in front of me, forgive the elbows. Let me just apologize in advance. I think we make this too complicated sometimes. God's purposes are hidden from us until he chooses to make them known to us. Now, why do I emphasize this? Pastor, okay, good. Point made. Can we move on, please? That's what some of you are thinking right now. But let me tell you, this is important. I believe some pastors and teachers fill in too many details. And when they do that, they add things to Scripture. When pastors say too much, they add things to the Word of God, especially with prophetic passages. However, this is not the Bible teacher's job. The Bible teacher's job is to help others understand what Scripture clearly communicates and then to encourage them to obey it. That's what a pastor's role is. That's what a preacher's role is. That's what a Christian author's role is, is to help people understand what does God's Word say? Now go out and live it. It's education and exhortation. Some things should remain a mystery for now. So don't be caught up in speculation about the end times. Listen, church, don't be caught up in speculation about the end times, especially as it pertains to current events. Don't waste your time on charts and timelines and predictions in popular end times books. Jesus, our King, has given us a mission to fulfill. That's where we need to spend our time and energy. We need to spend our time and energy, church, on the Great Commission. Not in trying to figure out all the details. Not in searching current events saying, oh, this person might be the Antichrist. Or, oh, here's a sign of the times right here. No, the the Great Commission never changes. Focus on that. Amen? leads to the second point of application. What God has not revealed to us, we shouldn't waste time worrying about. What God has revealed to us, we should invest lots of time (laughs) worrying about. And we should invest lots of time discerning. And so the second point of application is we should develop and work a plan to eat the book. We should develop and work a plan to eat the book. I'm not going to take much time on this. This is one of those things that I probably sound like a broken record to you about. But it's so important. You are not going to grow 
Like God wants you to grow, brothers and sisters, just by coming here on Sunday morning and listen, listening to me preach. It's not enough, not even remotely. And my fear is that some of you, this is the only time that you take in God's word. You need to eat the book. You need to digest the message. And how do you do that? You do that on your own by opening it up at home. Whenever works for you, if you're a morning person and this works, get up early and open up the book and read. If you're an evening person, stay up a little bit later and read the book. Turn off the television for a little bit and read the book. We have to have a plan. We have to develop and work a plan to eat the book. Just like John ate the scroll. John was to internalize the message. He was to know it thoroughly so that he could effectively teach it to other people. It concerns me when I hear people who have been Christians for many, many years say things like, well, the reason I don't share my faith with other people is I'm just afraid I'm going to get something wrong. Or I haven't been trained on how to share the gospel. Listen, this is one of our main priorities as Christ followers. Eat the book and digest the message. Get to know it. Prioritize that. Prioritize meditating on it, brothers and sisters. Prioritize memorizing it. Moms, dads, grandparents out there. Okay, I'm a dad. I'm pointing my fingers at me too, but some of you, right, you have children, you have grandchildren. We encourage, now think with me here, we encourage our children to memorize verses, don't we? In Awana and our other children's mystery programs that Prayerfully, in a few weeks, we'll be back up and running in some way. But we encourage our children to memorize Scripture. What about us? Maybe we should set the example for them. I know it's harder. Believe me, I know it's harder. This is not a sponge anymore. This does not just take in information anymore. And and I can't remember. It's a rusty old trap now. And I try to memorize scripture. How many of you can relate to what I'm saying? You try to memorize scripture. It's difficult. We have to prioritize it. We have to have a plan and we have to work that plan. Let's set an example for our kids. Not just tell them to do it, but let's show them. Listen, if we really internalize God's word, not just reading it, but meditating on it, memorizing it, it will transform us, and then we will be able to effectively share it with other people. And that's the final point of application that I want to show you here. We should proclaim the hope of glory in us. We should proclaim the hope of glory in us. And here comes our action step. We are to have a prophetic witness into the culture while there is still time for people to repent. Are we living in the, le- the end of the end days right now? I don't know. Again, I'm personally not going to get caught up in timelines and charts and trying to figure stuff out by current events. Because you know why? It doesn't matter. Whether Jesus is coming back tomorrow or coming back a thousand years from now, the great commission of our king remains the same. Amen? Either way. Whether Jesus comes back this week or he comes back in 20 years, the Great Commission doesn't change. We are to proclaim the gospel. 
The message doesn't change. We are to have a prophetic witness into the culture. Now, does that mean that everyone has to become a pastor and preach? Listen, unless the Holy Spirit is dragging you kicking and screaming into this gig, don't do it. <laughs> do what, do what, amen, Pastor Nelson? Amen. I thought I'd get an amen from you. Unless the Holy Spirit is dragging you kicking and screaming to be a pastor, it may not be your call. So you fulfill your call. You fulfill your call. All of us, though, can share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with loved ones, family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And, and so in closing, I just want to offer a very simple plan to you. First of all, be intentional. Here's a plan. This is all in your note sheet, but you can jot down some other things if that's helpful. First of all, be intentional. Who has the Lord put on your heart? Make a list. Even right now, if you have a pen and you have your bulletin, do this right now. Who has the Lord put on your heart? It might be one person. It might be a group of people. It could be a family member. It could be a group of coworkers. It could be your next-door neighbor. It could be someone that you participate in a, a social activity with. But who has the Lord put on your heart? Write that name down. Write a couple names down. Make a list. Be intentional. Second of all, I would encourage you to be prayerful. Pray persistently for them and pray for opportunities. Pray without ceasing, ceasing, as Paul tells the Thessalonians. Pray for them. Pray for opportunities in their lives. Third of all, this is so important and so often forgotten, so I gave a little more airtime to it. Be respectful. As you start this and as you start communicating the gospel to the people in your life, be respectful. Here's a starting point. Don't view them as projects. <laughs> Don't view them as your to-do list. Now, I know I just told you to make a list. <laughs> Remember their people. They have stories. Take time and listen to their stories. And love them as people no matter what they believe. No matter what they come back at you with, what their belief system is, as you engage them in spiritual conversation, continue to love them as people who are made in the image of God and who are so valuable that Jesus Christ died for them. Continue to love them and respect them. Now, let me just give you a couple thoughts and, and reasons why here. Maybe they grew up in a completely unchurched family. It's very possible today. Uh, and actually, we're into the second and third generation of unchurched people in our country. It's very possible that the person that you share Christ with has had no experience with the gospel, has no understanding of God, has no reason to believe that the Bible is the word of God, and may not even believe in absolute truth. And if that's a new philosophical idea for you, it's basically... Uh, the opposite of absolute truth would say, well, that's fine, Tim Hines, if that's what you believe, but I choose to believe something different. It's one of the most common ways of thinking in our culture today, and I guarantee you that if you start to share the gospel with people, you will encounter that. And so knowing that, start where they are. You need to start with them from their starting point. That might be with a God, that might just be telling them that there is a God, there is a creator, and he loves you. 
It might be talking about truth and absolute truth. And, and you might have to do a little bit of reading and philosophy and some other things to be able to talk about that intelligently. You might have to start with why you believe this is the Word of God and why it's so accurate. There, there are so many different ways this can play out. I, I take my cue from the Christian band 21 Pilots. Anybody here like 21 Pilots? Okay, their song, Heathens. I think I'm all alone. It's me and Chelsea in this room right now. Okay, Ken, okay, a few others, right? There's a great line. The chorus of that song is, all my friends are heathens, take it slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Sometimes we need patience. Nothing against evangelistic methods of the past. But too often, we have been encouraged to present the gospel to someone, and if they reject it, just move on. We need patience. We need to take the time to build relationship with people and to build trust with them. Maybe they're post-church. Maybe this is a lot of people today, friends. I know I'm going over, but this, what we're talking about right now is so worth it. This is a lot of people today. They're post-church. They've been hurt in church. They've left the faith. They have a different starting point than you do. They've been hurt in the church. I had a relationship like this with a guy named Ben in Saginaw. He had grown up in the church, and all he had ever seen from other Christians was hypocrisy and abuse, and the church that he grew up in hurt him bad. You know what approach I took with Ben? It was very simply this. I said, Ben, I'm not denying any of that. Sometimes the followers of Jesus don't live too much like Jesus. But the approach I took with Ben was, Ben, don't you miss Jesus? Forget about his people for a little bit. Maybe you can't walk back inside of a church right now. But don't you miss him? Don't you miss Christ? We need to think about where people are at and start where they are. I love, uh, you see on the screen there, you see what Pastor Jonathan Dotson's ideas are for uh, different starting points. Just real quick, he says, to those searching for acceptance in all the wrong places, we can point them to the perfect acceptance in the gospel of justification. To those searching for fulfilling relationships, we can point them to profound personal union with Christ. To those who struggle with tolerance, we can show them the uniqueness of Christ in the gospel of redemption. To those who fear disapproval or demand the applause of others, we can share the gospel of adoption, which offers an enduring approval and produces humble confidence. And to anyone longing for a new start, there is hope of being a new creation. Let's start where people are. In, our, in, in their lives. So that's number three, be respectful. Uh, number four is be truthful. Be prepared. Eat the book. If, if you don't, if you're scared to death that people are going to ask you questions you don't know the answer to, first of all, it's okay to say, I don't know the answer. Let me come back next time with some ideas. That's okay to say that to somebody. But be prepared. Eat the book. Is this a priority in our life or not? And so let's, let's be truthful. Let's be prepared. Let's at least know the gospel message. Let's at least know the gospel itself. Here's a very simple way to remember it. And out on the table, I'll talk about this again after the last song, but you find these cards. Make sure you leave here with that message today in hand. I want every single person in this room to take at least one of these cards when they leave today. 
Let's at least know the gospel. God created us to be with him, but our sins separate us from God. Sin cannot be removed by good deeds, and so pain, the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Everyone who trusts in him will have eternal life, and life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. It's a very simple message that many of us accepted as children. Let's make sure we have that down and be ready to share it. And then fifth and finally, be authentic. Tell your story. Tell them why you trust in Jesus. And then see what God does. Tell them your story. Tell them why you trust in Jesus. And then church, just see what God does. I will tell you that people, some of the people that I have had the privilege of leading to the Lord, were people in my life that I never, ever dreamed I was going to have that opportunity with. This really comes down often to faith. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit is able to change a life? Thank you, Robert. That was not rhetorical. Do we believe, church, that the Holy Spirit is able to change a life? If we do, then let's have faith and let's go to them and share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. We're going to close in a song, and then I'm going to send you out the door with this action step after we sing. And forgive me, church, I know we went long today, but I think this is so important. You know, we often bemoan state of the world and we often talk about all of the problems in our culture and we also are fearful for people that we love and and people that that they're going to die one day without christ my question is what are we doing about that what are we doing about that maybe god is waiting for us to take a step of faith to awaken that person to new life in him